You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Belarus shuts down its internet after its incumbent president's surprising, perhaps implausible, no really implausible landslide re-election. Papua New Guinea undergoes buyer's remorse over that Huawei-built national data center it sprung for a couple years ago. Versions of Chrome are found susceptible to CSP rule bypass. Zoom is taken to court over encryption. We've got some Patch Tuesday notes. Ben Yellen looks at mobile surveillance in a Baltimore criminal case. Our guest is Alex Giracu from Digital Shadows with a look at dark web travel agencies. And card skimmers hit a university's online store. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, August 11th, 2020. In the aftermath of a contested election that saw longtime incumbent President Alexander Lukashenko return to office with a nominal 80% of the vote, Belarus has apparently shut down most internet access in the country, Vice reports. Twitter said yesterday that its service had been blocked in the country, and others reported that many other services had also been disrupted, including a number of virtual private networks that, left undisturbed, could have enabled users to bypass service interdictions. The New York Times said yesterday that the U.S. had condemned the elections as fraudulent, neither free nor fair, and deplored the Internet shutdowns. President Lukashenko's principal opponent, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, has rejected the election and urged resistance to President Lukashenko. U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo said in a statement, quote, We strongly condemn ongoing violence against protesters and the detention of opposing supporters, as well as the use of Internet shutdowns to hinder the ability of the Belarusian people to share information about the election and the demonstrations, end quote. A report prepared at the request of Papua New Guinea's National Cybersecurity Center by an investigator contracted by Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade concluded that Papua's national data center is insecure, computing reports. Huawei built and staffed the national data center in 2018. Computing's account suggests careless implementation. The report read in part, Core switches are not behind firewalls. This means remote access would not be detected by security settings within the appliances. The firewalls themselves were also a problem. They were beyond their 2016 end of life by the time the center came online. The Australian Financial Review is harshly direct in its assessment. The center was built to spy, the paper says, with the weaknesses constituting, from the contractor's point of view anyway, features and not bugs. Other countries, especially Australia, which shares some long-haul telecommunications infrastructure with Papua, had at the time warned against bringing in Huawei to build the national data center. But such concerns were dismissed. 
Papua New Guinea's Minister of State Investment, William Duma, said that since his country didn't have enemies, the government wasn't worried about security concerns that surround the use of Huawei equipment and telecommunications infrastructure. The view that Papua has no enemies may not be perfectly true, but it's about as true as such a claim can be in this veil of tears. But it seems that sentiment may have shifted in Port Moresby as the Papuan government has asked for Australian assistance in bucking up the country's security. Australia is thinking about it. Security firm Perimeter X says it's found a zero day that affected Chromium-based browsers and permitted attacks to bypass browser enforcement of CSP rules. The vulnerability existed in Chrome versions 73 through 83. It's reckoned a medium-severity vulnerability, but it was so widespread, affecting Mac, Windows, and Android systems, that it presented a considerable risk to user data. According to the Washington Post, Zoom is being sued by the group Consumer Watchdog, which alleges that the company misled consumers about the quality of encryption the service provided. The company had, the suit alleges, misleadingly claimed to offer end-to-end encryption when, in fact, it provided only the less rigorous transport layer security. The lawsuit was filed late yesterday in Washington, D.C. Superior Court, thereby taking advantage of a local statute that permits not-for-profit organizations to bring suits on behalf of consumers. In most states, such lawsuits would have to either be class-action suits or suits brought by the state's attorney general. It covers people who used Zoom for personal, social, online connection as opposed to business purposes. It might include distance learning users, but that's not immediately clear. The plaintiffs seek up to $1,500 for every instance in which a D.C. resident used Zoom for non-business purposes. The plaintiffs also want an explanation of Zoom's suspected closeness to Chinese law, since so many of its operations were conducted in places where Beijing's writ ran. The notion of using a travel agent may seem a bit old-fashioned in this world of online booking, not to mention that at the moment, thanks to the pandemic... Nobody's really going anywhere. But there is no doubt that for a lot of people, travel agents provide real value. But were you aware that there are travel agents on the dark web? Our UK correspondent, Carol Terrio, has the story. So today, we're going to take the pulse of the travel industry. Let's see if we can figure out how cybercriminals have been impacting that area, both before the pandemic and now. We are checking in with Alex Guraku. He is a threat research team lead at Digital Shadows. Now, way back in February, Digital Shadows put out research about how cybercriminals had been disrupting the travel industry. Alex, can you give us a few highlights on that research? Yeah, Carol, thanks for having me on. So, so back in February, we conducted some research into the ways in which cybercriminals were targeting the travel and tourism sector on various cybercriminal platforms. And we found that on some cybercriminal forums, both English and Russian language, there were these what we like to call dark web travel agents that were advertising these services to get people really, really discounted uh, luxury travel. So like something that would cost me like a few thousand was suddenly available for a few hundred, that sort of savings? Exactly. So just like you would go talk to a a regular travel agent, uh, they would say that they could get you these big discounts, typically between 30 to 50 percent off retail value. Are they trying? 
trying to entice customers to purchase from them. And the way they're doing that is offering cut price deals. And they're able to fund these deals because they're using stolen flyer points that they're turning into some kind of cash in order to fund that. Yeah, or they're using the stolen credit cards themselves. So from the buyer perspective, you don't have to go to a cyber criminal marketplace and purchase a stolen credit card and run that risk yourself. Instead, you can go via these travel agents and then they'll hold that risk for you. And all you have to do is tell them, hey, I want a trip here. This is when I want the trip. Can you get me a deal on this? And they'll do that, all that in the background. And then there you go. You have an extremely cheap trip. Wow. And okay, as as a customer of these guys, do I know that I'm doing something a little bit dodgy or does it all look bona fide to me? So the way that they advertise this, they use a lot of flashy banners. Uh, they, they advertise a lot on different cyber criminal forums. They also have dedicated channels on various messaging services. So even if you don't have access to a cyber criminal forum, say if you knew this person through a friend who had done something similar, they'd just give you the phone number and you'd message them yourselves. And so that means you don't actually have to go to these cyber criminal forums, which definitely opens it up to a lot more people than it would otherwise. Whoa. Okay. So you discovered all this out back in February. There's tons mm-hmm. more stuff that you guys found out. Leave that to listeners to go and read on your website. But of course, then Corona happened, right? Which meant right. loads and loads of flights were grounded. How did that impact their uh, their business model? So for a lot of the major uh, travel agents that we saw on these cyber criminal forums, a lot of times they would get their customers to take pictures of themselves, um, you know, in the background of a luxurious hotel or on a flight to show that their services had actually worked. And so we noticed that following various lockdowns because of the pandemic, Mm. these posts had stopped or they had they strongly decreased. So it's definitely had an impact on these people that target the travel industry. Okay, And yeah, and, and in general, we've seen uh, various approaches being taken by these vendors. So some have decided to stay silent and not bother to post new advertisements at all. So ones that were previously prolific, they've, they've fallen quiet during this period. Whereas some others have looked to alternative ways to target the, the travel industry. Okay. Reminding people that, you know, even though you can't travel internationally, you may still be able to travel within your own country and kind of adapting to the way the pandemic has affected it. <laughs> Haven't you way. always wanted to stay at the Hilton in your very own state? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Do you have advice for people like me? Is this something that I would have to go look for or could I happen to get fished into one of these and be suckered in because the deal was so good? So I think a lot of it comes down to trusting your gut instinct. If you see a deal that's advertised that is, you know, crazy 50 to 60% off, if something seems off, then it's very likely that it is. And that goes back to, you know, making sure that you only do your purchases on legitimate, trusted websites. Hmm. I mean, it's really, that's a hard piece of advice to take though as well, because you think of all these, you know, dedicated, hardworking startups that are trying to do really good things out there. And it's the reputation angle is very difficult for them, right? That's a, that's a big ceiling to go through from, uh, from becoming a, a startup to a trusted company. Exactly. Mm. Well, thank you very, very much. Um, Listeners, if you want to hear more about this, there's tons of information, as I said earlier, on the Digital Shadows uh, website. Uh, So just go to their blog. And Alex, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much, Carol. Thanks for having me on. This was Carol Terrio for the CyberWire Daily. Our thanks to Carol Terrio for bringing us that story. Today, of course, is Patch Tuesday, 
Adobe's fixes are already out and they address 26 vulnerabilities, 11 of them rated critical in Adobe Acrobat, Reader, and Lightroom. Citrix fixed five vulnerabilities that affect versions of Citrix endpoint management on-premise instances. This product is also known as Zen Mobile Server. Citrix advises users to apply the patches as soon as possible. Although the company says it's seen no evidence of exploitation in the wild, attacks taking advantage of unpatched systems are probably only a matter of time. And Microsoft's updates for August are also out. As expected, they prominently address vulnerabilities in Windows 10. If you're still using Windows 7, which you really should think about not doing, you're out of luck. That version is now beyond the reach of support, unless, of course, you've paid for the extended security updates that will keep Windows 7 bucketing along for a couple more years. And finally, attention, all you Spartans, Michigan State version, your university yesterday disclosed that it had sustained a data breach. In this case, it was an online card skimmer that hit the university's store. Michigan State said in a statement that about 2,600 shoppers who bought at that store between October 19th of last year and this past June 26th had their credit cards exposed. The university said yesterday, quote, The university began notifying all potentially affected individuals of the breach today. It is offering them free credit monitoring and identity protection and making recommendations to further protect their information from exposure, end quote. The university's security team has remediated the problem, and presumably it's now safe to shop again. And we noted when we checked out the site that the summer sale is still in progress. So you got that going for you, alumni. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using Identity Orchestration, 
Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat podcast. Ben, good to have you back. Good to be with you again, Dave. Uh, interesting story we're going to cover today. This is uh, from the Baltimore Sun, uh, written by Jessica Anderson. It's titled, Baltimore City County Police Make Arrest in Rape Cases, Search for Additional Victims. Now, obviously, the subject matter here is uh, terrible. Um, the, what caught my eye about this and the reason I think it merits our discussion here is that the process that the police and, and law enforcement went through to capture uh, this alleged rapist is really a grab bag of, uh, of various types of uh, surveillance technologies. Take us through what's going on here, Ben. Sure. So this is somebody who is an alleged serial rapist. Uh, the first victim uh, was identified in an area in Baltimore County uh, near the Cromwell Valley area at a, a high school parking lot. She had just been through a traumatic experience, flagged down uh, a passerby in a car, um, and got into that car and, and called the police to, to report this rape and where it had taken place. A second rape with an additional victim uh, was alleged to have occurred in a completely different area of Baltimore County in the Dundalk area. And basically the same thing happened. This person flagged down a, a passerby, called the police to uh, report the rape. And because the modus operandi uh, was relatively similar between the two cases, law enforcement started to try to put the pieces together and realize that they had a serial rapist that they were trying to apprehend. Hmm. So the way they were able to obtain data is they found evidence from a uh, speed camera that this suspect's uh, vehicle, their their silver Oldsmobile, had entered the uh, parking lot of Lock Raven High School, which is the high school where the first event was alleged to have occurred. Hmm. Uh, they obtained evidence from a camera at a city gas station where the first victim was picked up. And, you know, they got some other forensic evidence uh, from the school parking lot. Uh, the other very interesting surveillance technique they used is geofencing. Uh, so the detectives obtained a search warrant um, signed by a judge to compel Google to give them information on all of the account users in the area of the high school parking lot uh, during the time of this alleged crime. And that search, and Google complied uh, with a subpoena, and that search identified only one user, and that user was the suspect uh, in this case. It was later traced uh, to Mr. Saunders, uh, the man who has now been uh, apprehended. Yeah, and it was an additional subpoena that they sent, then went to T-Mobile, the mobile provider, to get the records associated with that number that Google had tracked. Yes, and they were able to identify that it was the suspect who owned that mobile device. Uh, so, you know, this is very strong detective work here. And obviously, these are heinous uh, alleged crimes and um, it, a lot of uh, really groundbreaking and, and uh, 
well-executed police work was done here uh, to apprehend the suspect, making use of the digital tools at our disposal. Um, Geofencing, being able to trace uh, somebody's cell phone, uh, and the use of uh, public surveillance, things like uh, the camera in the school parking lot and a separate camera uh, at a city gas station. Um, And when you piece that video footage together with uh, geofencing, you know, it is it becomes a very effective way to solve uh, a case like this. One of the reasons I wanted to highlight this uh, on our show is that when you and I talk about these sorts of things, this the capabilities of these kinds of surveillance, I think it's very easy for us to kind of sniff at them and say, you know, it's it's too much. It's we have, you know, all all of the, the the I think the appropriate civil liberties concerns. Um, in this case, you've got a combination of all these surveillance things and um, could be used to solve some terrible crimes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's important for us always to remember is, you know, you never want to have a system of surveillance where you inadvertently collect information from innocent people. Uh, you know, and I think that's a theme of what we've talked about on this podcast and, and on the caveat podcast is when the tools become too uh, in, uh, intrusive and broad and, and uh, encompass unnecessary amounts of collection and information, then it really can violate people's uh, civil liberties. But the other side of that equation is we have somebody here who's a serial rapist who potentially would threaten other victims. Uh, and uh, law enforcement was able to apprehend this individual because of these technological tools. Mm-hmm. So the tools really can be used for both good and evil. And I think it's appropriate for us to recognize the circumstances when they are used uh, for something that's good, for something that's valuable. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, again, it's uh, from the Baltimore Sun, written by Jessica Anderson. Uh, ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.